The NBA Finals are heating up. Looking for hot takes on all the postseason action? The Old Man and the Three, presented by BMW, is the podcast to listen to for the ultimate finals coverage. Host and former NBA sharpshooter J.J. Redick not only has a plugged-in perspective on the action from his time in the league, but he's also announcing the games in real time for ESPN. J.J. has the ultimate insider point of view, and he's taking you along for the ride as he breaks down the best defensive schemes, dunks, and drives from each game. And speaking of incredible drives, there's no better place to tune into your new favorite podcast, The Old Man and the Three, than in a standard-setting BMW. Luxury meets power to create a wholly new driving experience. Push the limits this NBA season with the brand that set the ultimate standard. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. The Seahawks are doing their best to prove the point once and for all that a great roster can make an average quarterback good more so than a great quarterback can make an average roster good. There are exceptions to the rule. I'm never going to besmirch the name of Patrick Mahomes, but let's be honest. <laughs> Geno Smith was elevated last year by a great roster and rose to the call and played super well, probably better than a lot of people thought he ever would. And the Seahawks are doubling down on that again this year and making their roster even more stupidly overpowered. And I, for one, think they're going to be even better. We have a lot to go over today between scheme information and changes, coaching, personnel additions between the draft and free agency, and of course, bringing Geno Smith back again for round two. So again, lots to go over. Jay, roll the intro. In honor of Seahawks Day, I have a fine selection from one of my favorite distilleries. This is Woodenville. What is it? 30 minutes outside of Seattle, maybe? Ish? Uh, depends on traffic. Yeah. <laughs> it can be reached in 30 minutes on a good day. Uh, that's not most days. I got this directly from the Woodenville Distillery last time I was up there, which I think was when we went to the Titans game, right? Yes. Because I, I typically go to at least one Seahawks game per year. Uh, a couple years ago, it was the Titans game. Last year, it was Russ's return in Denver. Loudest stadium I've ever been in my life. How appropriate for today. And I really do love myself some Woodenville. This is the Muscatel finish that you can only get at the distillery. So if you live in the Pacific Northwest and you love yourself a good whiskey, go to Woodenville. Not sponsored, by the way. I just no. love them so Could much. Could be. Could be if they see this. Right. Hello, and, by the way. And like us, I mean, we're already propping up their bottom line. They'd probably lose money by sponsoring <laughs> us because we no longer buy their whiskey, but it's fantastic stuff. Uh, again, Seahawks day to day. Fascinating team. Incredible roster. A quarterback that played like a top 10 quarterback last year, arguably because of how good their roster is. Again, proving the theory that quarterback success is largely dependent on the resources and support system around them rather than the other way around. They were a nine-win team last year. I think they could very easily be even better this year and once again go back to the playoffs. What say you? Absolutely, and I would disagree a little bit. I think Gino was really sharp, and it absolutely helped to have the roster around him, but he made plenty of plays on his own regardless of the roster that were eye-opening for a lot of people that were watching and a lot of people weren't watching a lot of people missed it or were ready to dismiss him we talk about this all the time 
people make a determination about a quarterback at a certain time. And it can be a time when they're in college, can be a time when they first start in the NFL, it can be a time when they move to a new team or whatever. And I think people pretty much thought the book was written on Gino and he rewrote it last year. And the roster helped. I don't think he could have done it without the roster, but at the same time, he had some very good numbers on his own. This is a fascinating team. It's my quote unquote local team with me living in the Northwest. And I love watching this team. I love watching the front office. I love watching them try and reinvent themselves. I even kind of like watching them struggle when they went through a long period of that uh, because it's just, it's a fascinating organization. Um, macro, micro, all of it. We get to go to games. It's a great stadium. Uh, you've said it's the easiest stadium that you've ever oh, been it to is. to get into. There's a of. train station attached to it. Yeah, pretty much. You know, usually I'll stay at like either a hotel or an Airbnb up by Pikes and it's like, well, like a 20 minute walk down. You just walk right into the stadium. There's literally not a bad seat in the house. It's loud as fuck there. <laughs> like my yes. organs were vibrating every time Russ came on the field last year, which again, I understand that was special circumstances. But again, even when like the Titans game, and it's not like the Titans Seahawks is amazing rivalry, but fourth quarter, that place was rocking. Like I love going to games up there. I want to go to a game there every single year. Well, luckily we can do that. And I think this year we have the potential to see an even better product mm -hmm. than was on the field last year. And uh, when we had Mina on the podcast, she was talking about the rest game and she was like, we won that. Cool. Our season's <laughs> over. And the season wasn't over. They went on to develop a really good rookie class, um, have them challenge for league awards in their first year uh, and reel off a whole lot more wins than I think anybody thought was possible. Most people were predicting them last year to be you know, potential first overall pick. Now, you and I didn't anticipate playoffs, but we were more optimistic about them than most people just because we were looking at the roster as a whole. Uh, this year, I think, you know, people have kind of caught on a little bit more that this is a real football team. But I still think, like, double-digit wins, back to the playoffs, and, you know, once you're there, any given Sunday, like, it can happen. Like, I, again, I, I don't put them in the elite Super Bowl contender category. Would I be shocked though if it's them versus Philly in January if they knock off Philly? Like, no. Like, they're a very, very good football team that, were it not for a couple stumbles last year, probably could have won 12 games in, in a year that most people thought they were rebuilding. Like, they were very close to, to being a 12 win team rather than a nine win team. Yeah, people thought they were going to drop off. People thought they were going to be the bottom of the bucket. People thought they were going to be a three-win team. Remember last year, we, we were talking about five or six wins for that team in this show, and comments were like, you're crazy. They're, they're not going to win two games, right? They're terrible. They're this, that, and the other. This is a team that believed in itself. It said in the preseason that – it believed in itself. All teams say that in the preseason. I don't think anybody really believed them before they got on the field and started reeling off some wins early in the season. And people were like, wait, wait, the season's not over. They're not terrible. This is actually going to be an entertaining team to watch. And for me, having watched the Seahawks for the last 20 seasons pretty closely, it's one of the most entertaining Seahawks teams in certainly in the past 10 years. Well, especially like the last four or five Russ years where it kind of was Russ against the world in some cases, uh, which did not work out for them. Um, it, 
it was a breath of fresh air. Yes. It felt like a more balanced team. And they had their warts, both on offense and defense. For sure. But it felt like a more balanced team. It felt like a more explosive team. And they were categorically more fun to watch. I will say this, though. Slight preamble to your effectiveness summary. (laughs) There's a couple numbers in there that are pretty ugly. Yes. I want to make a note ahead of time. This, This run defense EPA, which was atrocious. At one point, lest people forget... They literally had no healthy nose tackles. There was a game where, due to injury, they didn't have any. And I think it was against the Niners, and they got run the hell over. They significantly invested this year in reinvigorating the talent pool in the interior defensive line. That number is going to go up. It's ugly. Just know ahead of time there was some kind of funky stuff with injuries that, that led to that last year. They had screeners at the gates. Like, <laughs> hey, you're 325. Can you go this way? We'll get you a helmet. Like. It, it we laugh about it, but it wasn't a laughing matter at the time. So 2022 Seahawks overall record nine and eight, second in the division. Again, mm. most folks would not have predicted that or did not predict that preseason. We didn't even predict that. I think we said third. Um, but yeah. home record five and four, road record four and four, very strong for a young team. And the last five games, two and three. Not great, but they didn't. They weren't one of those teams that stumbled to one and four, or over, zero and five, and that leads into our effectiveness summary, which is new this year. And we're just trying to break down whether or not teams are good at football. And the measurement that we chose to use for this is EPA per play. We broke it down into rushing and passing for offense, of course, stopping the run and stopping the pass on defense, and then you got to score points and stop the other team from scoring points. So points scored and points allowed. That gives us six numbers, and we take each team's league rank for those numbers. And we add those all up, divide by six, and we get a number we call the power score. So let's run through the effectiveness summary for the Seahawks for 2022. Rushing offense, league rank 14th. Right in the middle, a little bit above, actually. I think that's a nod to the growth and the investment in the offensive line and the running back room. Kenneth Walker burst on the scene, quite literally, uh, had a very good rookie season, helps Give some context for that number. Passing offense, 11th. And this is where I think if you had a truly average quarterback with a decent surrounding cast, they wouldn't have been 11th. Gino made some of those throws that probably took them from about, again, mid-pack 16th up to that 11th ranking. He was a lot sharper than a lot of people gave him credit for last year. Rush defense, this is where it gets gross. 26th in the league. Yeah. We talked about that, and for 2023, neither one of us think that number is going to be anywhere near 26th. For pass defense, EPA per play against, 20th in the league. Points scored, they were ninth. This was a high-powered offense that not a lot of people would have put in the top 10. Even, I think, at the end of the season, if you said, list the ten top 10 scoring offenses in the NFL, I don't think most people would have said Seahawks. No, most people would have had them bottom 10 right? easily. Points allowed looks a lot like the defensive summary, 25th. So, again, you take those six numbers, you take their league ranks, divide by six, we get the bootleg power score. The raw score was 17.5. We round that to 18. So the bootleg power score is 18. Some added uh, schematic stats to give context to the EPA numbers, by the way, because obviously they were, they were more of an offensively favored team that had flashes of brilliance on defense, largely turnover-based more so than being consistent on defense. Uh, But some added stats to give context was if you look at their coverages, 
between the 20-yard lines. And this is something we do for every single team. We take out the red zone numbers because red zone is an entirely different realm, right? Between the 20s is what matter. They were 31st and zero. Not a very blitz-heavy team to begin with, but especially at zero, they just pretty much never called it. Uh, they were 30th in cover one. You would think with the corners that they had last year, especially with Tariq Woolen being so good in press man coverage, they would have been a heavy cover one team, like going back to Legion of Boom days. They were not. They were 30th in cover one. They were 24th in cover two. They were dead average in cover three, which you're thinking, again, Seahawks being average in cover three. What is going on here? What did they actually call a lot? Because they were also 27th in quarters. What did they actually call here? <laughs> They were one of the teams that leaned heavily into quarter, quarter, half. That was really their bread and butter. They were sixth in the NFL in calling quarter, quarter, half, meaning, again, uh, you're playing quarters to one side of the field and essentially cover two to the other side of the field. Typically, you see that against trips looks. That's a very common trips check, but even the Seahawks themselves, even against two by two, they would call quarter, quarter, half sometimes. And they, they had different rules depending on different personnel groupings, different formations they were seeing and everything like that. But they really leaned into quarter, quarter, half. And the reason they did that is because they had Tariq Woolen. And the fact that on the quarter side, because a lot of times in quarters, it's basically press man to the number one receiver outside anyway. So if they called quarters to his side, he was going to be in press man. That's why he played so many press man snaps is because they were in quarter, quarter, half. Or... If he was on the cover two side, again, because he's so long and so physical and had such good range, they would play cover two to his side where he beat up the receiver and then he would sink and he actually got a couple, you know, interceptions that way as well. And so they kind of played a lot of quarter, quarter, half because they had <laughs> Tariq Woolen. You contrast that to Minnesota who played a lot of quarter, quarter, half, but they didn't use their DBs like Seattle used Tariq Woolen. So I think I just think it was a better executed version of that style of defense the reason why they were 20th in epa was other than Tariq woolen and to a degree kobe bryant at nickel i still feel like they were missing that one extra corner so that they could get away with it on the other side hmm. gives a little bit more context to their draft strategy this year but that's really the style they want to play is to be able to play cover two on one side and quarters on the other side and be able to do it in either direction, right? That's why they got Witherspoon is now they can do that. But you saw glimpses of what they envisioned their defense to be last year. And I think that now that they have even better, deeper personnel in the secondary, that 20th rank EPA is going to go up. Last year was a cool mix between what Sean Desai was doing and what Clint Hurt was doing. They had sort of co-defensive coordinator-ish roles. Yeah. Uh, different titles, but that's what they were doing. They were blending that together. And Desai really started his career as a defensive analyst and then a defensive back coach, uh, well, and a safeties coach, and then a defensive back coach. So he really is a guy that focuses on coverage more than the front seven. He's grown into that role. But you saw him looking at the personnel they had and leveraging them in specific ways and, yes, still wanting to have a little bit more. You can call that greed. You can call that whatever else. I think there's going to be a shift with him moving on, but I think a lot of this is going to continue. And I think, like you said, not only the moves in the draft, but also the moves in free agency were influenced by this and, quite frankly, by injury rates that they've had in their secondary. 
they haven't had Jamal Adams on the field for large parts of two seasons. So they went out and got Julian Love to have another quality safety that they really liked, who was flexible. We'll talk about that. But when you look at their sort of acquisition strategy, it's like, we did this last year. We almost made it. Like it worked some of the time and we were able to create turnovers occasionally. We just need more of this. We're going to lean into this and and modify it a little bit. And it'll be fascinating to see this year how those pieces mesh and how these numbers in terms of balance of coverages shift a little bit because they were almost solely quarter, quarter, half. If you look at the percentages, and I think that will lessen a little bit and some of those other coverages will get thrown in for flavor, but we'll see. Also, I would expect the cover one to go up specifically because now <laughs> when you have Tariq and you have Witherspoon, you got Kobe Bryant. Right. I, I, you kind of you have the corners to do it now. Yeah. I, and I have to imagine that a Pete Carroll coach team is going to call man coverage more than a 30th percentage in the league. Right. It's it's almost inconceivable. They were even that low to begin with. But we'll see uh, in terms of blitz percentage, you know, moving away from the secondary, more going up front. They were predictably pretty low in terms of blitz. I mean, this has always been a, a low blitz team, whether it was Pete's defense or Clint's defense or, or whoever their coordinator's been. They, they've never really been a blitz-heavy team, but especially last year, they were very low in blitz percentage. In uh, third and short situations, they were 28th in terms of bringing extra bodies. Third and medium, they were 22nd. Third and long, they were 29th. Especially third and long, it was very much we're rushing for and we're playing coverage. Um Again, kind of gives a little bit more context for some of the draft picks they've made over the last couple of years. They wanted Derek Hall in there so that they could rush for and realistically win more often. Uh, in terms of stunt percentage, this is what kind of caught me off guard is, is typically a lot of the times for low blitz teams, they make up for lack of number of bodies by calling a lot of stunts and giving their guys, you know, advantageous angles and, you know, kind of picking off offensive linemen, making them run into each other, giving themselves seams and cracks by using stunts. They didn't do that that much. It was They were 18th in stunt percentage, which was very surprising to me. Um, maybe they upped that a little bit this year. Um, I would like to see them up that a little bit this year just because of the athletes they have on that front now. I, I think that they would be very good on stunts, but... Yeah, they were they were pretty much a we are lining up as four, we are rushing four, we are going straight ahead, and we will try to win. And sometimes it works. Most of the time it didn't for them. Hopefully with these young additions, uh, they can kind of get it going. When you think about the fact that both of those guys are descended from the Fangio tree, it's actually pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. he's down in the mid twenties typically. He's a I'm not I'm not pulling stunts. Like that's just the way it is. And both of them are like, I don't know. There's a couple stunts I like. So they sprinkle them in and they end up mid-pack, which is lower than a lot of the league, obviously. More than half of the league um, used more stunts than they did. But they still used probably twice as many as their mentor did. So uh, it's somewhere in the middle. Well, Vic hates losing contain. That's the thing. Is And when you when you run stunts, sometimes like you just give back doors to mobile quarterbacks. That's a lot of the reason why some guys don't like doing it. Apparently, they really didn't like doing it because of that reason. Like They they did not want to lose contain. They did not want to lose rush discipline. Um, they kind of build their pass rush out of layers mm -hmm. more so than kind of creating cracks and seams. And again, it's a risk reward and every coach has their different preference. But I, I was just surprised that it was so low for them. Uh, flipping over to the offensive numbers, 
run concept frequency. So what are the types of runs they leaned into? They were a heavy outside zone team. Um, you know, positively Kyle Shanahanian type numbers over here, 38% outside zone. You realize that like half the Seahawks fans just were like, nope, we're, we're <laughs> done. <Turned> it off. <laughs> they were uh, dead average in inside zone, about 16th. Did not call a lot of duo, did not call a lot of power. They were 25th in both. They were sixth in counter, which is something you do see with outside zone heavy teams that when they start seeing like those, it really any front that is like a six man surface with, you know, one linebacker. Um, and there's a couple different ways that you can do that in terms of what the fronts are called. It just depends on which bodies are where, but let's just call it a six man surface, right? Every single gap is plugged up in the line of scrimmage. We want to get penetration. We want to force the running back to cut back earlier than they want to. That's typically how you see, um, not typically, but that is how a lot of defenses like to stop outside zone these days is we're going to choke it off before the cutback can even happen. Uh, and so to counter that, you call counter. Because the more bodies that are up on the line of scrimmage, the more traffic that can create when you're kind of down blocking and you're pulling guys. Um, the more bodies you take off the second level, the less are available to scrape over the top of those down blocks. And so counter is a very common call against either those 6-1 fronts or like tight fronts because they want to just create a wall of bodies in the line of scrimmage. And they were sixth in counter. So again, very common thing you see uh, with outside zone teams. They were third in draw, which was... Kind of surprising to me because like Gino's mobile, but I didn't I didn't see him as like so mobile that they leaned heavily into draw, but I guess they did. <laughs> so I gotta go back and, and find where they call that draw numbers. Do they only count it as quarterback? Draw? It was anybody, anybody. Okay. But like typically teams with very mobile quarterbacks, you'll see be really high in draw because because you can right. So it's like, did they call a lot of draw with? Kenneth Walker, like I couldn't remember if they did, so I gotta that go was, back and look. That was my thought: is it, if it's in balance, we talked a lot in the first round of these about quarterbacks and draw on the tie, and I was like, "Ooh, is it just QB draw or is it draw anybody? any any draw?" Because yeah. there are those plays in the Seahawks arsenal where Kenneth Walker or whichever back last year it was Travis Homer a lot too, like sets up, shows block, and then he's going. Yeah, and that's you know, classic draw. And I was like, oh, okay. So given that, that it's both, I could see that number from the Hawks. I will say there are some offensive coaches that heavily believe in draw as a third down call when you're in four down territory. Yes. Because they see it as a reliable way to get like five yards to set up fourth and two. So again, I have to go back and look at the film to get the context behind that, but it definitely caught me off guard. I was like, I didn't see them as a draw team, but apparently they were. Uh, and then they were dead last in pin and pull, by the way. So um, when they did pull guys, it was typically on counter more so than on like G lead. Uh, so again, overall, very, again, they're not a Kyle Shanahan team, but definitely feels like they have Shanahan type influences in their run game. And I'm curious to see how Zach Charbonnet fits into that because I don't see him as a wide zone type back. I more see him as like inside zone or calling duo or calling power. It's possible they drafted him specifically to run those types of runs because they want to do more of it this year. Feels like a good balance pick. We talk about building rooms. We talk about building strengths and having a diversity of skills. And they've got outside zone in Kenneth Walker. They have explosion. They have cutback. They have the speed, the ability to win the edge. Um, 
They got that in their young tackles that they drafted last year. Both of them are very mobile. A lot of their offensive concept frequency stuff feels like it lines up really well with the personnel they had. They have outside zone, Kenneth Walker. They have the speed to get the edge. They have the cutback ability. Um, one of my favorite things about him coming out in the draft was his second cut um, just leaves defenders like grasping both of their young tackles, very mobile. So they have that. feels like they have that dialed. They have it in the bag. They know they can execute it. If you are trying to build a room and diversify your skill set, you go get a guy like Zach Charbonnet to say, great, when we don't want to do that, when we want to run even inside counter, if we want to run any of the duo power stuff, like let's get a back that has enough shiftiness, some good speed, decent size, can break tackles inside and really do something different than what we've got as opposed to, oh, let's just go get another Kenneth Walker clone, mm -hmm. which if you're talking about Shanahan run games has really been the way that they've gone. Like, let's get four of the same guy <laughs> who has a lot of linear speed and can run this no matter let's what. clone Raheem Mostert right. three times. And we're just going <laughs> to lean into that. The Hawks are taking a different approach based on how highly they drafted Charbonnet, a player we really, really like, by the way. Um, we'll talk about that in a bit. But to say, let's see if we can't do this and this really well. We need a different piece to do that. So I think that explains, in a way, the Charbonnet pick. We'll see how they choose to use him. Um, but a lot of this stuff lines up. If you watched their run game last year on tape, and they had a lot of success. Um, Kenneth Walker had a lot of explosive plays. They came in runs he's very good at, which were, for the most part, outside zone concepts. When I look at Zach Charbonnet, I see like a Latavius Murray, um, Michael, quite as Michael Bush. Yeah. Um, God, who was, uh, I would even say DeMarco Murray yeah. with, with slightly less long speed, right. but in terms of build and footwork and everything like that, it's very, uh, very downhill. By the way, can you hear that I'm sick in my voice a little bit? Is it, is it coming through too much? No. No? It's less, I think. Less so? Okay. No, it's like way less than when I got here. Certainly less than this morning. So apparently the shower helped and the whiskey's probably helped. Oh, too. yeah. The whiskey's great for the immune system. It's medicinal. Yeah. Yeah. At once upon a time it was. Uh, all right. Still let's is. Get to, uh... Still is. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> for a broken heart. And that's about it. <laughs> uh, let's get to passing offense. The, the stats that I'm sure a lot of people have been waiting for because the passing offense was the flashiest part of the 2022 Seahawks and something that we expect to not just continue, but get even more ramped up in 2023 for reasons we will get into. They were a relatively average offense in terms of play action utilized, which for a run scheme that they have, you would expect them to be leaning more into play action, but they were very average at it. They were about 26%. Um, in terms of average time to throw, they were quote unquote, slow, you know, at about 19th fastest, but with how much play action they did use and how often uh, when they did call play action, it was like bootlegs and long developing stuff like that. That seemed to pretty appropriate to me. Like, again, 2.84 seconds is not something I would consider slow. I would just consider it par for the course. Here's where it gets kind of funky because some of these numbers don't make sense together and you need extra numbers to give context to the numbers that are, we're already trying to give context. You're just to. in your happy place. You have numbers to explain numbers now. And I had to, God, it was what, 1 a.m. last night. I was going through the film because I, I put these numbers together and I was like, 
how? How is this remotely possible? That doesn't make any sense in my brain. So I had to go through the film and then I was like, okay, now let me find these numbers because I have an I have a instinct for what I think they are. And I was correct. Uh, okay, so air yards percentage. That is the percentage of passing yards that comes through the air rather than after the catch. They were sixth in the NFL, 57.1%, which indicates that a lot of their passing yardage came from them just bombing it down the field. However, average depth of target, they were 8.5, about 20th. So you're like, how did most of their yards come through the air when their average depth of target was 20th? That would be indicating that they're more like a Lions-style offense, right? Where it's dink and dunk and we're getting yards after the catch and all that kind of stuff. Here's how it happened. They had the 12th most targets of 20-plus yards down the field. They had 80 targets. But... They were second in targets short of the sticks, meaning for the most part, they were kind of a ball control, dink and dunk, everything like that. But when they had to go deep, they went fucking deep and they were more efficient at it than literally everybody else. So typically a quarterback on like targets of 20 plus yards down the field, you're hoping to get 33, 35%, something like that. Geno Smith, among all starting quarterbacks last year, had the highest completion percentage on targets of 20-plus yards down the field at 51.6%. That is nuts. And that explains why, even though they didn't target the intermediate area of the field very much and they were, for the most part, throwing short of the sticks why most of their yards came through the air because when they went deep, they hit it and they hit it at a ridiculous level. And it wasn't just a, oh, Geno Smith is deadly accurate or DK Metcalf is super big and physical and fast or Tyler Lockett is one of the best deep ball receivers of all time. It was all those things together. And it was a fascinating collection of numbers because it also explained why they were kind of streaky. Mm-hmm. as an offense because there were some games where they just they didn't hit it yeah and they kind of relied on it and there were some games where they hit everything and they would they would be able to score with anybody in those games right and so they kind of they did rely on hitting the 51 percent in the games where they hit the 49 they didn't win it but in the games where they hit the 51 they were almost unbeatable so it's a fascinating offense for that reason again he was fifth in big time throw percentage he was sixth in yards per attempt, despite having a bottom 12, you know, average depth of target. Yeah. It's a crazy passing offense that seems unsustainable, but I would argue, based on the addition they made in the first round this year, they won't have to sustain it. Reminds me of a basketball team that relies on shooting threes. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's very like... Golden State Warriors, Prime Splash Brothers, like when they're hot, there's nothing you can do. And that's why I push back a little bit on the Geno thing is there are certain quarterbacks, and we name many of them on this podcast, where we say, oh, the play is just chuck it up, DK's down there. That wasn't Geno, like you said. It was to lock it. It was to DK. It wasn't just one receiver. And there were a lot of those throws down the field that he dropped in the bucket. Mm -hmm. They were pretty pretty passes and you can talk about yeah the offense schemed those up and you can talk about the fact that both those guys catching the ball are really good 
didn't really matter. Like yeah. he was making beautiful hole shot throws down the sideline and and really down the sideline, much greater depth of target than you're seeing. And all offensive coordinators want to stretch the field, right? They want to make the the typical football truism is make the defense cover every blade of grass. And there's two ways to do that. One is vertically and the other is horizontally stretching the game out to the edges, quick screens, making people cover all the way to the sideline. But the Seahawks did it uh, in a vertical way that was really interesting. It was either really short and you had to come forward and get it, or it was keep coming, keep coming, and we're going way over your head. And yeah. there was this no man's land that was sort of typical in the rush years because he just didn't target the middle of the field. For them, it was like purposeful sort of vertical displacement, right? We're either going real short within five yards or we're going plus 15. We're going down the field and in the middle, we're not doing a lot of that typical. And there's a lot of NFL routes that end up in that sort of gray area. That they just didn't really they throw that much. Didn't use yeah. that part of the offense. And it was, again, you need both parts when you're doing it that way. But they hit the deep part more often than almost any of their contemporaries. So they ended up winning more games than I think most people thought. Yeah, and here's what's fascinating about it is I, I think – like well, first of all, Gino did throw over the middle more than Russ did, which is extraordinary given these numbers. But in terms of the intermediate throws outside the numbers, he threw it less than Russ did. So it's just kind of they they took the outside the numbers stuff and they just pushed it slightly more vertical. I don't know. It's such a weird offense. But I, had a, I love it. I had a college or actually high school late high school and later basketball coach that would circle our shots. And if you th put up anything like outside the elbow that wasn't a three, he was like, why are you doing this? Right. That ball should go to the post or it should go outside the line. Uh -huh. like, why are you shooting an 85% two pointer? Right. Like get out to three or get it into a more high percentage shot. This is dumb. Don't do this. And it feels like the Seahawks circled those areas on the field and said, we're either going past that and trying to get a chunk or we're doing something more compact in almost a triangle because he did throw over the middle of the field more than Russ, which again, and is, most people do, <laughs> which is kind of crazy considering they didn't throw to the field very much. And he still exceeded Russ's numbers there. It's it's such a crazy offense, but again, it's it's Fun exciting. <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, looking at their coaching staff and, and general power structure, this is a group that's been together for quite a while, or at least at the very top, right? You know, Schneider and Pete have been together for God, how, how many years now? Over 12, a decade, I think. Thirteen, something like that. There's a couple additions that they've made recently, though. One in particular on defense that I am super super excited about and a big reason why when we get to our uh, division recap on Friday and we're picking picking rookie of the year <laughs> in this division why I have a, a certain Seahawks rookie defender chosen for mine but go through the power structure here and eventually get to uh, my favorite coaching your, edition your fave made. one of your favorites and we both have favorites throughout this series of of notable additions and we'll sort of DM each other about did you see they got this guy. They landed this guy. This is this is going to change the team, and I think this is one of them when we get to it. But starting at the top, general manager John Schneider um, has been through what feels like sort of three Seahawks eras, right? Mm -hmm. The early rebuild era, and they had their great draft. And they basically build the Legion of Boom. They get Russ, 
that leads to their early success, which buys them a lot of time, quite frankly. If you have that much success in the NFL, people are going to re-up your contract, give you a longer leash. And they needed it because then they went through the doldrums. They went mm -hmm. through a long period of lesser success where they were still quite successful. I was going to say, the doldrums for Seahawks fans were still like nine wins a nine year. Nine win seasons. <laughs> yeah. But it seemed like they would get to nine or ten and they couldn't push over. And then towards the end of Russ's tenure, it got, you mentioned this earlier, really stale as mm -hmm. a fan. You knew that they were going to go into the third quarter behind they were going to lean on Russ late in the game. If his heroics came through, they were going to win. And if they didn't, they were going to come up short. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And it was a very stressful way to watch football. And it was it got to be predictable. And that's, I think, eventually why they moved on. And now we have this, I feel like, fairly clearly defined third phase. Right? Mm -hmm. Trade Russ. Get all the picks. What are you going to do with all them picks? And over the last two years... They've kind of gotten back to what really built the team in the early years, which was huge success in the draft. So fascinating GM to kind of watch that arc. He's been right there with Carroll. Those two have been paired together since they came on. Um, and there was a lot of question about what Pete Carroll was going to do. He's one of the oldest head coaches in the NFL. Doesn't seem it. One of the most energetic. Uh, went paddling in Lake Washington. With, oh, did he? With uh, one of the tribes and all the rookies the other day in a canoe. After really? practice. Yeah. Because it's Pete. Why wouldn't he? He's got boundless. He got more energy than I do, and he's like I, seventy something. I wish I had the energy of a Pete Carroll, but um, there was question about whether he was going to sort of ride off into the sunset. He didn't want the rebuild. He's he's fully engaged, mm -hmm. uh, and and last year you could see he was enjoying it in a different way. He's getting to coach again, getting to teach a lot. A lot of young players trying to pull a team together. That's fun for a head coach, and I think it reinvigorated him. Uh, down into the coordinators, another team where we have now an associate, not an assistant head coach. That's Carl Smith. Um, the offensive coordinator is Shane Waldron, and it's fascinating to see Shane Waldron because, um, again, uh, Shane Waldron straddled two of these eras. He came with the last year of Russ, and um, there were a lot of people like, okay, who's going to win? And everybody was like, they're going to run the Russ offense, and they did. Yeah. And that wasn't super exciting, and it wasn't a great window into what Shane Waldron wanted to do. And last year, uh, those sort of handcuffs were off, and we got to see a lot more of what he wanted to do, and we just spent five minutes talking about how cool that offense is um, and how different it is to watch and, and how we can watch that progress. So Shane Waldron doing a really interesting job at offensive coordinator. Clint Hurt, the defensive, the sole defensive coordinator this year. Sean Desai has moved on, so he retains that title um, exclusively. And then special teams coordinator, um, one of the more notable ones, at least to me, in the entire league, Larry Izzo, mm -hmm. who was a pro bowler, like, annually for just special teams uh, for the Patriots. And so if you want to talk about a guy that knows what it takes to be uh, a quality special teamer, Larry Izzo. You know what my favorite Larry Izzo story is, by the way? No, I don't. He's the only player to successfully pee on the sidelines without Bill Belichick noticing. Oh, that does <laughs> That's seem... That's a personal point of pride for him. That does seem an incredible <laughs> distinction given Belichick's uh, coaching tenure. Uh, now let's get into notable coaches, offense and defense. Uh, we'll talk about offense first so we can save your thunder for last. Greg Olson is the QB coach, 13 years of experience as an NFL offensive coordinator, not as a quarterback's coach, and he is now a position coach. So Gino did a lot to develop his own game, but Greg Olson is one of those coaches behind the scenes that's having a huge influence on a team and how that team plays. 
Gino's talked about how he bounces things off Greg Olson. Um, just a wealth of experience. And we see this with really successful teams where they build staffs of former head coaches, former coordinators that are even sometimes position coaches or just special assistants that are really influencing sort of how they build the special sauce. Greg Olson is that on offense. And then I'm going to let you talk about BT Jordan and how oh. he's doing that on defense. I, I can't believe they landed him. So they pulled him out of Michigan State <clears throat> and Coach Jordan was there for either one year or two years. I can't remember. He, he wasn't at Michigan State for too long because he was always a rising star amongst pass rush specialist coaches, I would say. And he would work with a slew of NFL pro bowlers and all pros every single offseason, right? They, they go to coach BT and they would learn with him for weeks and weeks and weeks out of the offseason. Um, I consider him to be the equivalent of like Duke Mannyweather for offensive linemen. Coach BT was that for defensive linemen, especially pass rushers, edge rushers, everything like that. Um, and so Michigan State pulled him, and I don't know what they paid him, but it had to have been a hell of a lot of money. And the Seahawks were like, no, 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 no. We got some young guys we need to coach up here. Here's a blank check, right? Uh, and good for him. Like, he's earned every dollar that I'm sure he is getting compensated by the Seahawks. Uh, but he's incredible. He's one of the best pass rush coaches at any level of football, anywhere. He's an amazing human. Um, I've, I've had the pleasure to chat with him a few times over the years, you know, even back when he was just doing independent consultancy and just kind of working for himself and everything like that. Um, he's so damn good at what he does. And part of the reason why I think the arrow is pointing way <laughs> up for some of their young guys, Boye Mafe, Derek Hall, all them, is because Coach BT's there. Uh, I think within a couple of years, this pass rush with some of these young freak athletes they've got is going to be downright nasty because of how good he is at what he does. My favorite stat about him is he's worked with over 200, 200 NFL pass rushers. Which sounds made up, but when you consider that basically the whole league goes to him, yeah, it makes a little bit more sense. And we're seeing that title, pass rush specialist, literally as a coaching title, as a position coach it's no longer outside linebackers coach or defensive line coach the teams will still have them but then there is literally one guy there are multiple teams putting all these agendas together that have pass rush specialist as a coach now and i almost wonder what uh younger players are going to do for that individual coaching <laughs> because the two guys bt jordan and chuck smith <laughs> that's who they used to go to <laughs> are now both on are both on staff yeah. so teams so i don't know how much independent work they still get to do but it is fascinating to see teams prioritizing what is a very important part of defensive football carving out its own coaching role that is sort of regardless of position and saying we just need to generate pass rush and we're going to have one guy in charge of that and going out and getting some of the foremost experts in the world and putting them on their staff. When you think about it, pass rush in itself, how many clean pass rush reps do you get per game? Five, six? Yeah, not many. Because you need a third down that's, you know, six yards or more. So you get a, a longer developing pass play, ideally. Um, and it also depends on the, the, the type of coverage you're in, right? Uh, because if you're in a press coverage look, 
And if the offense that you're playing against is the type of offense where if they get press coverage, they're auto converting routes outside to fades. That's a quick throw. You only get two seconds. Like you're not going to get a clean pass rush rep. So you have to a be in the right coverage that allows quote unquote, a quarterback to sit back there and go through progressions so that you get two and a half or more seconds. You need a long yardage down so that you get time. You might get five or six a game. Of in terms of clean pass rush reps. And if you only have five or six chances a game to win, the fact that you can get 20 sacks a year yeah. with that few chances, it's that really puts into context how valuable the top pass rushers are because they almost get no real chances to do their job. It's super high leverage down, and it makes sense to commit resources to it. Because the swing for an offense or a defense, these are the defensive side of the ball's version of explosive plays. They Mm -hmm. are defensive explosive plays. And if the defense makes them, it sets an offense back and it radically drops offensive success for that drive. If they just make one of these plays. So it is an area worth investing in. And it's it's just one of those league trends to keep an eye on that we're going to see, I think, even more emphasis placed on this area of play the other thing that's on the seattle staff is tons of former players because pete and and john i think both really lean towards giving those guys opportunities and every year we get to highlight them so we're just going to highlight a bunch of former pro players that are on the seattle staff donovan jackson played in the arena league Kerry joseph played in the nfl and the cfl sanjay lal played in the nfl and nfl europe Damian Lewis, NFL, Pat McPherson, NFL, Chad Morton, NFL, Deshaun Sheed, NFL, Nico Thorpe, NFL, and Will uh, Tukuafu, also NFL. So that's like nine, ten guys that are former players that are on this staff. It is one of the most uh, former player heavy staffs in the entire NFL. And that's not surprising given Pete's loyalty to his players. When did they get Kerry Joseph? I totally missed that. Yep. Wow. Okay. And Morton. Morton's got some fascinating stats. We highlighted those last year. I think he's one of the, well, he's one of like two players in NFL history to return a punt and a kickoff in the same yeah. game for touchdown. Like, just really interesting guys. But um, even guys that have moved on. Aaron Curry was on this staff last year. Now he's on that. a different staff. Um, this is a uh, think of it almost like an incubator. Like Pete is very very open to bringing former players on and seeing if they have metal as coaches. And a lot of those guys go on to long careers in NFL coaching, and it's because they started with Pete. He gave them their first opportunity. Looking at the offensive, uh, I, the the term skill position is no, we don't use that. Us. <laughs> we don't we don't use that term on this podcast because we fully recognize the skills of the line players. Um, I almost feel like ball handlers. Yeah, it's like people that touch the football. Often, yes, we know offensive and defensive <laughs> linemen touch football sometimes, but folks that have a better than average chance to touch the football, right? Because they're all skilled. So, but that group for them is as good as anybody, right? Because loaded. Geno played like a top ten quarterback last year. Uh, you know, you have DK Metcalf; he's a certifiable number one beast. Tyler Lockett's always been. I don't, I don't necessarily think he's ever been a number one. Like he's had to kind of play that role every now and then when, when they're before they got DK. Right. But it, when he was allowed to be 
the number two, right? The complimentary piece, whether it was against or whether it was with like Angry Doug back in the end or before they got DK. When he's allowed to be the high end number two, he's arguably the best number two in the NFL over the last decade, right? And now they got JSN to be what they had been trying to find for a couple years prior, which is like that slot assassin, right? Somebody who's going to work the intermediate area, which they didn't get to do as much as maybe they wanted to. Um, More importantly, though, looking at the JSN edition, and I want to emphasize this (laughs) because we talked earlier about how this was not a very yak-centric team, even though they were second in targets before the sticks, right? So if they were capable of getting more yards after the catch, uh, it would have benefited them greatly in terms of not constantly putting themselves into third down situations, right? If they were better after the catch, they probably would have been a more efficient offense even than they were already. Drafting JSN to me was to fix that yak issue for an offense that does throw short of the sticks a lot because he was great after the catch. He's very shifty in short areas. His burst, you know, the five to seven yard area burst in terms of how quickly he can go from stop to starting. It's almost uh, running back type skills with the ball in his hands. His yak ability is a big reason why you were super duper ultra high on him in this draft was because he could take a screen and turn it into 20 yards. He could take a hitch and make somebody miss and turn it into 20 yards. Like that yak element that we highlighted earlier is something that they have been trying to get forever. Mm -hmm. And now with JSN, I think they have it. And looking at the context of fantasy, JSN's going as wide receiver 31, Lockett's going wide receiver 33. When they're kind of going back to back, I kind of would prefer JSN. And I know that's sacrilegious because Tyler Lockett's been so productive for so long. But considering the role that JSN is going to fill, and it's a role that I think they've been trying to feature Mm -hmm. and have not found anybody for it, I think there's more targets for JSN. I think there's more catches for JSN. There might be more overall production for JSN just because he does something that the rest of this receiving core does not, which is everything but deep balls. Yeah, keep sleeping on Lockett. Uh, <laughs> I, that's the thing is like I, I don't want to sleep on Lockett, but like if we're, I know if they're going right next to each other, it's wide receiver thirty-one versus wide receiver thirty-three. Obviously, not all of them are going to feast this year. Mm-hmm. Who are we putting our money on? It's hard for me to not say JSN just because of the role he's playing here. We will see some of that vampire action on targets like we will see i think both dk and lockett's targets being funneled to jsn because again they haven't had that strong third option that like you said they've been looking for forever but i i saw a random stat and don't quote me on it but it was close basically like over the last nine years like tyler lockett's been the third most productive wide receiver well he's steady eddie right right but like in the league yeah yeah, third. It's probably him and Brandon Cooks and right, exactly. Hopkins, and, you know. Right, but when you talk about Tyler Lockett, he never gets that kind of respect, and it just feels like a feels like kind of the curse of the Bambino for like Seattle wide receivers, <laughs> right? Like Doug Baldwin was amazing, never got his due. 
Lockett, amazing in a very similar role. Never gets his due. People are like, oh yeah, Lockett's good. And you're like, okay, list your top 15 wide receivers. Never makes the list, right? And here, look, appropriate value. He's going, you know, 33, I see that. And he is gonna have some of his targets siphoned off because you're right, it was super high on JSN for good reason. He is going to produce from day one. He is super polished. He was basically a pro receiver in college. Um, also versatile, has size, has great hands, runs routes, has played inside, has played outside. Anything you want to do with him, you can do from very early on. If there was a receiver that I feel is sort of most insulated as a rookie against overload, it would be a guy like JSN. I'm like, hand him the whole playbook mm -hmm. and tell him he can run two of those roles, two and a half, three. I don't care. He can probably do it because he's done most of it already. Um, weirdly enough, a guy that's not listed on this list is getting a little bit of buzz. And it's the guy they drafted before JSN to try and fill this role. Uh, D. Eskridge. I completely forgot he was even there. Right. And he was, in my mind, miscast. I was not high on Eskridge when they picked him. It felt forced to me to fill this role. We got to have it. We got to have it. Western Michigan, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. Smaller guy. Um, again, super speedy. Hoped he could play in space, build yak. Never really happened. Turns out he's been struggling with injuries for a couple of years. This year he has two things. He has JSN in front of him. He doesn't have to shine. Everybody's forgotten about D. Eskridge. But they're just keeping whispers out of like OTAs that like Eskridge looks reinvigorated. Like he's rising to the challenge. He's healthy. He's all this stuff. And I'm like, if they get him as a four, yikes. Because well, the top three is already super scary. Early in his NFL career, less so in college, but I specifically remember early in his NFL career, um, the getting open part wasn't the problem. It was the catching the ball part yeah. that was a little bit of an issue for him. Um, and he's just a small guy, right? So tiny durability concerns are always going to be there for a yeah. small guy. I just, I feel like JSN's such a safer bet to survive the NFL. Oh, no. This is not comparing Eskridge and JSN in any way. It's like, oh, this completely forgotten piece that was supposed to be JSN before JSN, yeah. who everybody's written off, rightfully so. He hasn't played a lot. He hasn't produced a lot when he has played. If he comes in as like the four that everybody wants to forget about, he's still ultra quick. Like JSN is going to take so much pressure off him because I think it'll be about game five mm -hmm. before NFL defensive coordinators are like, what are we doing to stop JSN? Which is ridiculous to think about when... His outlying receivers are DK and Lockett. Well, that's the thing is like when you look at how the Seattle offense is structured, um, it's it's like you know what DK is going to do. He's going to be 100%. at the X receiver, and he's going to be running go routes. He's going to be breaking pass coverage. If you give him an off coverage look, he's going to snap it off and turn it into a curl. He's going to run slants because he's really freaking good at slants. Um, occasionally they'll call like a blaze out with him. Yeah. They'll call some deep crosses with him. It's not that his route tree is like he's running everything, but the routes that he runs, he's really freaking good at, yeah. you know, and Lockett, it's like, okay, he's going to run basically a, it's not, they don't run deep choice like Tennessee does, but they've always used Lockett as a deep receiver that will read leverage and read safety position and just run to grass. Right. And it's like, hey, if it turns into a post, great. If you're running a post and then you have to 
bend it out to a corner, fine. Like they will let him read and just kind of make a determination and find space. He's always been a very smart player and a very great ball tracker down the field. So it's basically just find space. We'll throw it to you. You go get it. Right. Right. Catch it over your shoulder because you're really good at that. And, and JSN's such a different player than them. And also in terms of the stress he puts on a defense, it's so different because with DK, it's okay. We're going to take our biggest, strongest corner and take a chance that he can survive against Lockett. It's we're going to keep our post safety deep. He's not going to be biting anything under. We're going to keep our post safety deep. We're going to have our corner. He's going to be bailing. So we're it's it's not playing a, a bracket, but you mm-hmm. basically are. It's like we're taking away the middle third and we're taking away the boundary third to lock its side. And if he kills with comebacks, fine. But right, it's, we'll it's, give it to him. But it's better than a 60-yard touchdown. But with JSN, it's so different because he's going to be running all of these different option routes. Like he's going to be running um, double moves. Like he's going to be running stuff over the middle. He's, he's going to be running whip out of the slot. He's going to be running screens. I wouldn't be surprised if they give him some jet sweep stuff because Waldron comes from a coaching tree that loves yep. to call jet sweeps or at least threaten jet sweeps. Like if they kind of give him some like Robert Woods type stuff to do. And it's so much more versatile of a role and and so much harder to plan for because he can do one of 10 different things on any given play because of all the different stuff he can do. So I'm not saying he's going to like put up Garrett Wilson numbers, you know, while we're on the subject of rookie Ohio State guys that Mm -hmm. have dominated the league. But in terms of number threes that are rookies in the NFL, out of all the guys that have come into the NFL as a number three, a clear number three, I'd bet JSN outproduces what we expect a rookie number three to outproduce by a significant margin. I'm talking eight, 900 yards, six, seven touchdowns, which doesn't sound like a lot, but like that's conservative to me. And it would be a great rookie year, historically speaking, and everything on top of that's gravy. If he makes that level of yardage, he'll be outproducing the top number threes in the NFL. The vast majority of them, at least, yeah. Almost all of them. Yeah. Like, who's one of the best number threes you can think of in the league? If you're thinking of number threes that you would bet on. Uh, First one you always mention. Plays with Joey B. Oh, uh, Tyler Boyd. Tyler Boyd. Yeah. You know how many yards Tyler Boyd got last year? Probably like 800. Nope. Mid-sevens. Really? Yes. Yeah. And we think of him, rightfully so, as one of the top number three wide receivers in the league because he is. I mean, again, playing with Chase and Higgins and you pull 750 and whatever it was, four to six touchdowns, like that's one of the top number threes in the NFL. I think JSN has a very solid, like reasonable chance to eclipse that in his rookie year as a number three. Like, just like you said, 800 yards, six touchdowns, like that would make him one of the top three number threes in the NFL, like Barna. He could do it. Easily. Like, I don't even feel like that's a stressful call. Looking at uh, the other, again, quote unquote, ball carriers, ball touchers, whatever <laughs> whatever questionable think, phrasing you use before. I don't think unless Manscaped <laughs> is sponsoring this episode that we're going to call them ball touchers. Ball appreciators, I don't know. Uh <laughs> So we got Kenneth Walker. He's going as RB15 right now. 
considering the Zach Charbonnet edition, yeah. I don't know about that. Like it seems it seems a little bit early, and that's nothing against Kenneth Walker. Sure. I just feel like this split here yeah. is is going to be significant because this is a franchise that historically constantly loses running backs to injury. I do not anticipate there ever being a bell cow here. Um, as long as K-Walk and, and Charbonnet are in the same backfield. I think they're both going to be highly productive. RB15, I don't know. For, for a clear like 40-40-20 split in that backfield, for me, slightly early. Um, Geno Smith going as QB15. That might be slightly late for yeah, it me. It feels a bit late given his play, the fact that they've added weapons. He's even more comfortably as another year in the offense. I would say it's a touch late, not like disrespectfully late, but like I'd be comfortable two, three slots earlier, quarterback slots earlier. I think I think will be a QB one, which is again, you know, QB twelve or higher, right? Yeah. By the way, the the ADP numbers we're using are from Underdog Fantasy, uh, our season long sponsor this year, our and uh, two seasons two long. for two seasons. <laughs> yes. Yes, our two season long sponsor, which we are incredibly thankful. And uh, these are particularly for best ball because they're running Best Ball Mania 4 right now. There's a $15 million prize pool at stake here. So, again, if you if you happen to be uh, JSN truthers like we are and you feel like he's going a little bit late, you can use promo code BOOTLEG. They'll match your deposit up to $100. And, by the way, that $100 would be good for essentially four free entries into Best Ball Mania 4, which is $25 an entry, again, for $15 million in prizes. There's a regular season championship, and there's the fantasy playoff championship. Uh, lots and lots and lots of money at stake here. Uh, lots of chances to win. The first year I did it, it was a million-dollar prize pool, and that was like three years ago, and they're already up to 15. They just kind of keep stacking money on top of it with each passing year, and it's absolutely insane at this point. So, again, if you're a best ball player, best ball enjoyer, which is a format that a lot of people like more because they don't have to set the lineup every year. It's just, or every week. I do. It's just whatever, whoever on your roster scores the most points, that's what you get credit for. So a lot of people like it because it's more draft centric than waiver wire centric and trying to, you know, figure out pick the fab right guy budgets. Yeah, and, pick yeah. the right guy in the right week. It's just, uh, are you good at drafting or not? You know, that's strangely why I like it. I, I prefer it that way too because during the season you and I are very busy and we don't have time to <laughs> do all the fab that's a whole bullshit. another layer but if you believe uh, in us and all of this content that we're creating all this summer sign up for underdog best way to guarantee that they return free agency yes a uh, lot of turnover on this roster yeah. um, interior defensive line shitload of turnover but also I think welcome turnover all things considered yeah, they needed to continue. I think they hit the lottery in last year's draft. We've said that multiple times. Right after the draft, we listed them as one of our top three classes. Uh, turns out that played out on the field as well. We were correct about that one. So Markoff won on the good side. Um, but they, I think, are emboldened by that. They had even more picks left over from the rest trade. They wanted to do it again. And that means you're going to move some veterans off your roster and replace them with, hopefully, highly touted rookies. Um, in terms of notable free agent losses, Shelby Harris played a bunch of snaps for them at edge, almost 50%. Um, a lot of lines in general. So defensive lines and offensive lines, both. Gabe Jackson moves on. He played 61% of their snaps. Austin Blythe moves on at center. 
Uh, he played 95% of their snaps last year. Uh, Puna Ford, one of my favorites, goes to the Bills. So shout out to the Rock Pile guys. You got a good one. Um, sad to see him leave Seattle, but he played 55% of their snaps. Um, Marquise Goodwin, who we mentioned in the Browns episode, uh, moves on. Um, Al Woods. Uh, yeah, that one hurt. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, colloquially known as Captain Thigh Arms. Um, <laughs> as, as That's amazing. Moved on from his... <laughs> absolutely pivotal role in the middle of that defense making sure that nobody ran on them and when they didn't have him we saw what happened so they definitely invested in that piece um some other folks that were notable Rashad Penny uh Cody Barton Ryan Neal uh Jonathan Abram was on the Seahawks last year and signed with the Saints uh got a decent contract but not amazing just a player I loved in the draft that hasn't necessarily really panned out in his stops yet, but a lot of people didn't even know he was on the Seahawks last year. So I felt like it was worth mentioning. Uh, one that I think might hurt more than people give credit was uh, Travis Homer. Pass protection extraordinaire. Um, one of the better pass protecting backs in the entire NFL. Mm-hmm. He carved himself out a third down role in this team for a long time, specifically because he's darn near unbeatable in pass protection. Um, he was credited with, it was like five pressures or something like that, uh, last year. And I, I remember I was like, that seems high for Travis Homer. <laughs> and I went back and I watched the tape of like all five pressures he was credited with giving up. And it was really like one, yeah. there was like one time he got beaten the entire season. So, you know, the fact that the bears got him, um, was a coup for the bears just because I would very much like to see Justin Fields not get obliterated anymore. So that was great for them. But in my opinion, a loss for the Seahawks, a $2 million deal to make sure that your $75 million investment or whatever it was in Geno Smith doesn't get ruined uh, by somebody coming clean off the edge. I would have liked to see them keep <laughs> Travis Homer, but you know, good for him. So Got that a, money in Chicago. So you're a Homer Homer? I'm a Homer Homer. Absolutely. Nice. Always will be. I'm a sucker for, for running backs that actually know how to pass protect. It's kind of a lost art these Hell days. Hell yes. He's really, really good. Um in terms of free agents that they did keep, uh, obviously Geno Smith with that $75 million deal that like wasn't really $75 million. Um, honestly, it was less than I thought he was going to get from them. Like I thought it would have been, you know, ticking the triple digits there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very team friendly deal. Like pretty much after this year, if they want to get rid of him, they can. Yep. And not really, not really feel the hurt. It was three years, $75 million, 25 per, obviously, which, again, by current quarterback standards, that's half of, less than half, actually, of the going rate for Lamar, Jalen Hurts, all that. And for somebody who produced like a top 10 quarterback last year, if you're paying A, less than half market rate for that, and B, only locked in for a year, mm-hmm. that feels like an incredible coup for the Seahawks. Now, it, it is something that I feel like Gino maybe is like kind of betting on himself and maybe we address it again next offseason if he does that again. But for a 33-year-old quarterback, which is not that old by current quarterback standards, to get potential top 10 to 12 production for $25 million, you couldn't ask for a better value for Seattle there. It was a great deal all around. Um, they also brought back Michael Jackson, the corner, who... I imagine will be supplanted in relatively short order by Devin Witherspoon. 
but getting him back for less than a million as a depth piece is fine. Uh, Nick Ballore at 3.3 was also a great value for him. Yes. Um, special teams demon. One of my favorite Seahawks currently. He's awesome. Uh, Jason Myers brought him back for about 5.3 million, which for the kicker market, yeah, totally fine with that. Uh, let's see. True lock, I didn't really care. Honestly, at four million, fine, whatever. And then in terms of third party additions, guys outside, well, finger quotes outside yeah. <laughs> the Seahawks organization. They brought back Bobby Wagner. Yep. You know, he took a, a one year stint over at the Rams, brought him back at five and a half million. He is not the Bobby Wagner of old, but he can still absolutely maul guards on the second level and get off blocks and make tackles. So as long as you're not asking him to do a lot of the coverage stuff that they used to ask him to do, he's going to be awesome. I, I liken him to like a Dante Hightower type piece now where he is within that kind of seven yard box on the line of scrimmage. And you say, Bobby, go kill people. And he's going to go kill people. Just don't ask him to cover that much anymore. Uh, they also uh, brought back Jaron Reed from the Packers, just kind of getting the band back together, so to speak. At four and a half million, which in the current interior defensive line market, it's a deal where the top end is going at anywhere between 26 to 32 million. And that's before Quinn and Williams signs his deal, before Chris Jones signs his deal. That's a pretty darn good value. Uh, Evan Brown, they brought in from the Lions. Uh, Julian Love, as you mentioned, they brought in from the Giants. And Draymond Jones, this one was kind of a coup. At seventeen million for interior pass rush help, again considering the current IDL market, he's going to be ten to fifteen million less than the very top, top, top of the interior defensive line market. He was uh, kind of an early free agency wave signing for them. That that money has only gotten better since they signed yeah. it. Uh, they did a really, really nice job in free agency, in my opinion. In terms of efficiency, it's hard to beat it at some high leverage positions financially. So this is John Schneider. He's sort of showed his wizard skills several times throughout his tenure in different ways. And this offseason was um, a return to form for him. He you know, brought out the crystal ball and polished it up, got in early, hit the right players with the right deals that seemingly when you look league wide don't look possible shouldn't be able to be conjured out of thin air but he made it happen and it's really interesting to look at this class again with the numbers we talked about up top in terms of what they did well what they didn't do well holes they needed to patch very strong free agency and then to come out and have the draft they did again for the second year in a row Folks, this is how bad teams get good, right? Mm -hmm. The Seahawks weren't good. To have two drafts this strong in a row is how you go from not contending to contending for a long time and having a young core and going to the other problem, which is the good problem to have. How do we pay all these guys? Because they all worked out. So this year in the draft, they start off in round one. Cornerback Devin Witherspoon from Illinois one of my defensive gems, one of my favorite players in the entire draft. And as you said earlier, the other piece they needed on the other side. Now you yeah. got Tariq Woolen and Devin Witherspoon. That allows, I think, players that are better at nickel to move inside. Kobe can now focus on being a nickel. He doesn't have to float inside and outside. 
it's just a great, great piece. And in terms of the mentality of how he plays, it's going to allow that defense to be aggressive. I, I don't really want to be a receiver coming into Seattle right now because you're going to get beat up. Oh, my God. It's just a bunch of killers back there. Yeah, you're going to get beat up. Between Tariq, Devin, Quandre, Jamal comes back. Oh, my God. The cold tub is going to be highly necessary after playing Seattle. They're going to beat the shit out of people. Yeah. At an additional round one pick, as we've talked about, it's pick 20. They go with Jackson Smith and Jigba out of Ohio State. Talked at length about him and his impact. Round two, pick 37, edge Derek Hall from Auburn, who we both really liked. Thought he could have gone even earlier than that, possibly the end of the first round. I think he's going to add juice to the pass rush. Um, It's going to make people forget pretty quickly about LJ Collier. Um, the rotation of sort of Boye Mafe and Derek Hall. And, you know, you've got this young core, again, working with a new pass rush coach. you got Daryl Taylor still there. Yeah, Daryl Taylor actually sort of, I think, a lot of people thought similarly of him and LJ Collier coming out. Um, their grades weren't that different. Feels to me like Taylor has developed more. Yes. And LJ Collier had his flashes, but it, they were more like sparks that never sort of got into a sustained burn they let him go you know um, who else they have by the way in that rotation yes tyreek smith yes you loved him coming out of and he was a tremendous value where they got him so you get all those guys with bt oh my god and just be like hey that's what i'm saying go. by 2024 that pass rush is going to be disgusting yeah and i think Derek hall we both think Derek hall is going to figure into that earlier rather than later given his skills and his resume coming out of the SEC. Round two, 52, they get Zach Charbonnet in the back out of UCLA, who we loved. We talked about his impact earlier. Love, love, love that pick when it happened. Uh, they go all the way to round four, pick 108. They get guard Anthony Bradford out of LSU. Don't know what to say. They love their guards out of LSU. It's just their thing. <laughs> they have a type. So they get another one. Another pick in round four, pick 123. Um, defensive tackle Cameron Young out of Mississippi State. Again, they they don't want to be short defensive tackles, so they go get an ass kicker out of the SEC to be like, you're going to stuff the run. This is what we do here. This Cannot rush the passer to save his life. Nope. But boy, he can stop the run. He's a brute. <laughs> and again, this is a team very clearly, I would say very honestly, assessing we were absolute shit at this. We need to plug those holes. Like, we're going to go out in free agency. We're not going to stop there. We're going to go out in the draft. We're going to make sure that we don't get to that situation again. Did you see, by the way, not to jump the gun on Mike Morris, who was their next pick, round five, 151. Did you see they're converting him? Oh, they did already, yes. They said after they drafted him, we're going to bulk him. Wow. Apparently one of those is going to hit us one of these days. That was a. I don't know if people heard that, by the way. So fireworks (laughs) in downtown L.A., Sound like nuclear bombs going off. <laughs> they are large explosions in stone canyons, and uh, they reverberate here. But yeah, they actually said when they drafted him, we're going to bulk him up, which I kind of countered. I actually wanted to see more of his quickness because I thought he did. You talked earlier about limited pass rush reps, and he had extremely limited pass rush reps at Michigan. I think he had 200 for the entire year, and yet his pass rush percentage was really pretty high. So I wanted to see them kind of trim him out and set him loose, maybe even push him out farther towards wide nine. And they went the other way right after the draft. They said, no, we're putting weight on him. We're kicking him inside. We like his power. Uh, And that he and Cameron Young are both going to be playing predominantly inside as threes to maybe four eyes. Um, So we'll see how that works. Uh, It's a fascinating experiment. And then round five, one of my 
under the radar favorite picks in the entire draft, not just Seattle's draft, but the entire draft. Uh, Ulusegun Uluwatemi from Michigan, the center who I think can be starting for this team by the second half of the year. They have been trying to find a long-term answer at center. God, when was the Max Unger trade? A long time Eight, ago. seven years ago, yeah, maybe? That something was like that. Atlanta. And that was 2015, yeah. so seven, eight years. And they've, they've been trying to find a center ever since. And again, this is an outside zone heavy offense. You kind of can't do that without having a good center. And they just haven't haven't hit there. So I hope for their sake that Olu Olu works out because by God, they've needed one. Yeah, they brought in Evan Brown, and everybody said, oh, Evan Brown's going to be the starter. And I'm like, for now. I, you know, his deal was a couple million, two and a, two and a quarter million. I don't think he's in any way entrenched. And I had a much higher grade on Oluolu coming out. I was would have been comfortable with him fourth round or later. Another great pull by John Schneider. Um, in round six, pick 198, they get Jarek Reed. Uh Safety out of New Mexico, built a little bit more like a linebacker, um, incredibly muscled up guy. Feels like more of a dimebacker special teamer to me yeah. uh, if he makes the 53. And then round seven, come through and steal Kenny McIntosh from the national champs at Georgia uh, is a receiving option for this running back room that I think is really good and is going to surprise some people because he's incredibly efficient in that role. Everybody looked up high at Jameer Gibbs coming out of Alabama and said, oh, he's the best receiving back in the draft. And if you look by number, McIntosh's receiving stats were better than his in most categories. When we talked about the 40-40-20 split earlier, where it's Kenneth Walker's going to get 40, Zach Charbonnet, I would also think, is going to get 40, but on different types of runs, right? Inside zone, duo, power. Um, the 20 is going to Kenny McIntosh. And maybe that also explains a little bit why they're willing to let Travis Homer go, because maybe they want somebody who's more of a receiver on third down than a pass protector. Maybe they feel like their offensive line is in a position where they can do more empty protection, so to speak, or uh, you know have their running backs more kind of check and, and then release out, something like that, um, rather than being dedicated protectors. And if they want a more receiving-oriented third down back, Kenny McIntosh is it. He's going to get significant snaps as a rookie. I understand the athletic testing was underwhelming. But on film, because again, film is what we do here. On film, if you look at how he moves, he's a way better athlete than the testing numbers suggest. His dead leg cut is nasty in space. <laughs> he's got great ball skills. One of the only guys in this draft class in terms of running backs who, if we're throwing it 15, 20 yards down the field, I actually trust him to catch it. It's pretty much Gibbs, Bijan, and Kenny. Like, that's kind of it in terms of backs that I trust to catch it that far down the field that have ball skills. Um, tremendous pick. I don't know why he went in the seventh round. I really don't. I don't know why he lasted quite that long. Um, a lot of Georgia fans didn't even like him. They, they Yeah, well, they they're were, used to Nick Chubb, yeah, right? They're, they're not wild about him, but he was incredibly solid in the SEC. Like his, Even his carries average with everybody was, oh, he's not a good running back. He averaged like four and a half a carry in the SEC. Yeah. Like he was solid as a rusher and excellent as a receiver. He just wasn't terribly flashy. He wasn't the guy to rip off like huge gains. But again, in this role, in this offense, a tremendous value pick by John Schneider. 
In terms of UDFAs, they had a huge UDFA haul. And also guys that I think will make the roster and potentially more than just be other guys on the roster. Guys that I think, not to put too much expectations, could be starters. Yeah, but to be clear, we talk about UDFAs for every team. This is the deepest yes. UDFA haul, and it might have the most quality as well. So it's not just numbers, it's not just quantity, it's quality as well. I would start with Jake Bobo, who he's he's kind of a fascinating receiver profile because he's tall, he's stiff, he's a big slot, he's darn near a tight end mm-hmm. who's just thin, right? Um, I, I don't know what role he fills on the Seahawks receiving core because like JSN's just a better slot than him period. But if they want to put JSN more outside sometimes at like Z or whatever, and we want a bigger presence in the slot, Jake Bobo would be it. And again, not super wide variety of routes, but he's good at what he does. Um, And then we got Matt Landers, uh, absolute freak out of Arkansas, which they love to just, Take their dart throws on freak receivers and see what happens. Noah Gindorf is the one I'm most excited about, the tight end of North Dakota State. If he was not hurt during the pre-draft process, he would have been drafted. Mm-hmm. He had a pretty significant injury that he suffered early in the season. I believe it was ankle, if I recall correctly. Uh, some lower body injury. Um, you know, Missed the entire rest of the year, missed the pre-draft process, couldn't get healthy. But this is an absolute moose of a human being. He's 6'6", like 270. He's not Gronk, but he's built like Gronk. You know, Gronk was Gronk, was Gronk. But in terms of frame and size and strength, like that's the, that's the kind of frame we're looking at here. Really good after the catch just because he's so damn hard to tackle. He blocks his ass off. You can't play at North Dakota State unless you're a really good blocker. He's like a true Y tight end, which, again, they have not really had in Seattle. And this is an offense that could absolutely use it because of how much outside zone they call. Uh, Tyjon Lindsey, one of your favorites out of Oregon State. C.J. Johnson out of East Carolina. Jonah Tavai out of San Diego State. I have no idea where he fits into this rotation, but he's just fun. He's just super fun uh, as a pass rusher. Uh, MJ Anderson out of Iowa State, Lance Boykin out of Coastal Carolina, Anquan Bush out of Cincinnati, Christian Young out of Arizona. It goes on and on and on. I'd bet five or six of these dudes at minimum make the practice squad and probably three or four make the final 53, which by UDFA standards is pretty good. Seattle has been a haven for UDFAs throughout Schneider and Carroll's tenure. Early in their tenure, second, third year, 53% of the 53 was UDFAs. That's, oh my God. I I wish I could convey properly how insane that is Yep. relative to the rest of the NFL. (laughs) Yeah, it is a much higher percentage of undrafted free agents playing on your team and contributing in, in good roles. Those were teams that were beginning to push for the Super Bowl. And it's because they invest so much in this process and they sell that it is competition every day. 
You have as big a chance to play here as you do anywhere if you play well. And they basically have guys that they get guys that want to bet on themselves. It's not that they think they have an easy path playing time. Some of these receivers, we talked about how good their receiver core is. They got four of my favorite UDFA receivers in the same class on top of drafting my favorite overall receiver into a receiving unit that was already stacked, right? But this is the allure of a Pete Carroll team that preaches, if you play well in practice, you will be on our team and you will play on game day. Let's cap it off here with the report card. After everything that you've heard so far, you know, talking about schematic numbers last year and what we expect them to be this year and coaching staff changes and personnel additions, personnel losses. There was a lot of information conveyed. After taking into account all of that, here is our final report card for four categories, front office, coaching, offense, defense. We can either go you know, straight up, slightly up, even, slightly down, straight down. Uh, and then we cap it off with our record predictions where we kind of give a range of outcomes that we expect here. Front office report card, firmly up. And most front offices, we don't go this far up because a lot of it is like, you know, we're trying to figure out Projection, a draft yeah. and it's hard to really grade a draft till three years. But considering what they did in free agency, both the third party additions they made at reasonable contracts relative to what their position's making in the free agent market and the deal they pulled off with Gino. I can't really give a high enough grade to what John Schneider's done. And oh, by the way, we like their draft too. The last two years for him, I mean, the 2011-2012 the, the period was amazing. This, I think, is on par with what he's done. Like the last two years for him, he might be the best roster builder in the NFL and that's saying a lot he's all the way back there was a lot of years there where we we're like John what the fuck are you doing <laughs> he's back to me like we are it's prime John Schneider time again I never thought we'd see it but here we are he's been incredible he and Howie Roseman are right there in terms of they do it very differently but if you're talking about top roster builders in the NFL right now it's Howie and John Schneider and to have that kind of success in the draft two years, then add free agency and, oh yeah, crush the UDFA process again. Again, folks, this is how bad teams get good. For coaching, we're going uh, you know half up, slide up, whatever you want to call it. Again, there's a lot of stability on the coaching, so we could have gone even, but the addition of BT Jordan. <laughs> just for you, we had to- Just for me, up. we had to go slightly up there. Offense also going slightly up because the addition of JSN. You know, you got year two of the young offensive linemen. We're giving a breather back uh, as well as a true third down receiving back to compliment Kenneth Walker. Could only go up there. Uh, and then the defense, which already had some really talented pieces, adding Wagner again, uh, adding Jones, adding Love, Reed, and then Witherspoon, Hall, and Young, like all these guys. Like it's, it's going to be a better unit than it was last year. It's hard to be worse against the run, but in terms of their pass defense, their pass rush is going to be better. Their coverage is going to be better. They're going to be able to do more of the stuff they want to do, looking at the quarter-quarter half stuff. Like, for once, they finally have the personnel to run the scheme they want to run. This is going to be a very, very good team. It is balanced. It is fun to see a team as young and as balanced. 
It is rare. It is difficult to achieve. Um, and you need to hit on all cylinders. You can't just have a good draft and then blow free agency or blow your re-signings and, you know, just get good. You, you have to do it all together to get this much good young talent on both sides of the ball. The Seahawks look to have done it. Of course, we have to see how it translates on grass, but they have as good a chance as anybody in the league to be really good and really balanced this year. Looking at ceiling and floor, and this is the the ceiling in wins that EJ and I have protect, have projected as well as our floor in wins, and we each have our own picks here. I went with an absolute bottom-out floor of eight just because of how strong the roster is. Mm-hmm. And even then, like they, they kind of hit some rough patches last year and still ended up at nine. They could have ended up at 12, like we said. Like There was a few games where, that were winnable that they could have gone to 12 last year. If everything goes completely tits up and there's injuries or if Geno comes back down to earth, I'll give them eight. They'll end up as like a mid-team just because of how good the roster is. In terms of ceiling, this is where I might get a little bit of pushback because we've talked so positively about them. My ceiling for them is 11. A lot of people have them as even higher than that. Here's why I have them at 11. This is a very good team. It's better than last year. When they get to the playoffs, they'll be more of a threat than they were last year. Mm-hmm. However, they got to play against the AFC North and the NFC East. Not to mention, they're probably going to split with San Francisco. They're probably going to split with the Rams. They're going to blow the doors off Arizona, most likely, two times. I would imagine between the split with San Francisco and the Rams, going 2-2 two and two against the AFC North, which is a very strong division, and then going 2-2 two and two against the NFC East, which is also a very strong division, there's six losses. They're still going to be a great team. They're still going to be a threat to do a lot of damage in the playoffs. It's a little bit of a stretch for me to go to like the 12 to 13 range that, uh, that a lot of people might be expecting just because of how hard their schedule is. Our floors are the same. I had them at eight wins for their floor because I think there is just too much talent. And, you know, Pete could even revert and say, we're going to play it the old way and they could probably roll off eight wins with this roster. I'm going to go into the 12 win range for their ceiling. I'm going to put it at 12. I think they beat the Rams twice. I do think they probably split with the Niners. Yeah, they're probably going to mash Arizona. And I think they steal a couple from the NFC East, which was arguably the strongest division in football last year. I think this team, just like last year when everybody said, oh, they're going to be in the basement, they're going to win four games, and they won more than twice that, is going to come out this year when people are saying, I think nine or ten, I think that, you know, and they're going to win 12 or 13. And they're just going to be like, you didn't believe in us last year? Well, guess what? We got better. You didn't believe in us this year? Guess what? We got better. So I think they're ceiling, again, if everything continues to go right, even if Gino does regress a little bit because he's got more help, is 12 wins. I think writing off Gino, to steal a phrase from him, uh, <laughs> is inadvisable at this point. At your own peril. He's a man on a mission. And he's a very good quarterback just based on what we saw last year. Yeah. It's hard for me to think that a 17-game sample size is all of a sudden going to you know, turn into a pumpkin overnight. Like At some point, you just got to acknowledge, like, he's pretty fucking good. He's good <laughs> like, at he's this good. point in his he's career. Good. And it's one of those things where he feels centered to me. 
He feels comfortable. Very comfortable yeah. in his own skin with this team. I think it's one of the reasons he took the deal is he didn't want to go anywhere. He feels like he's home. He knows he bounced around. He didn't have this fit for so long in his professional life. He got it. He was like, I don't care what you pay me. I really don't. Like, pay me something. I'm going to stay here. I'm on a roll. You believe in me, at least even for the next year. And I think he's comfortable with that. Again, this I think early in his career, he would have been like, what do you mean you don't want to sign me for three years? Now he's like, I don't care. You sign me for one, I'm going to play well. You sign me for three, I'm going to play well. I'm just good. When you see him in interviews, which I do a lot living where I live, he's just he's just calm. Yeah. He's just floating on top of the waves right now. And that to me is as much coming from your leader, the the person that your entire football team looks up to. He's like, we got it. I root for him. I root for him more than most other quarterbacks just because of everything that he's been through to get here. He's one of the best stories in the NFL. I couldn't be happier for him. Um, all right, we went over a lot today. Now, your sweater, your your vintage. My, yes, Seahawks if, we're, if we're hockey playing, this is my sweater. Uh, you can find that over on Homage, by the way. If you're if you're a Seahawks fan and you happen to want to get something in the throwback colors or really anything Seahawks, they have like thirty different. That's the twelfth win, designs. by the way. What do you mean? They're coming back with the throwback colors this year. They get to wear them. You're right. That is this year. So that that alone is worth the extra win in my column. Oh, I forgot. Because what, these did, are, did they announce what games they're doing that uh, for? They did. But these are classic colors, and they are going to look so incredibly clean. If you are inspired with all this positive Seahawks talk that we have put out there for the last hour, head over to Homage Clothing on Homage.com. Uh, they have like 30 different styles. They have uh, Grateful Dead inspired NFL wear. They have throwback stuff. They have current stuff, men's styles, women's styles, you name it. Check them out. Anything you buy with the code that you'll find down in the description helps support the podcast. Week eight against the Browns. That's when they're wearing them. I might come up for that. <laughs> it's such a good uniform. Dude, it's, it's so such a good clean. Uniform. So clean. Worth a win all by itself. Uh, all right, we'll be back tomorrow talking Niners, the reigning division champs, and possible repeat division champions. Still an elite roster, even if the quarterback situation is far from settled at this point. Yeah. Uh, and then on Friday, we got our overall NFC West division look back. Thank you once again to Underdog for making all this possible. Again, if you're a Hawks fan who doesn't live in Washington and you want to enter into basketball mania, Drew Pickums or anything during the season, uh, use promo code bootleg. They'll match your deposit up to 100. And with that, EJ, I'm going to gonna go take some more medicine and get ready for the Niners episode. See you guys tomorrow. Take care. Take care.